This podcast is brought to you by The Learning Connection, School of Creativity and Art, tlc.ac.nz. Hey, so welcome guys um, to our uh, Artist Creative Practitioner Talk. Um, sort of um, proud to present one of our staff members, uh, Matt Sharp from MRP. Most of you guys probably have some kind of interaction with Matt at some point. So um, how I know Matt, um, well often you might find us sort of nerding out in the hallway, you know, uh, to aliens or horror or apocalyptic themes in video games. You know, we get quite emotional about that. Um, but through this, I sort of discovered more about Matt as well through his um, filming and photography and his side projects and even just the experiences. There's a lot, um, lot we're going to sort of discover. So I believe Matt is going to show us some video clips um, and, you know, we'll sort of tap into that. I think uh, we can ask questions if it's yeah. through the thing, so yeah, so th take it away. Yeah, so I think that because most of you might not have seen any of my work, I'd probably just start with my showreel, which is sort of what I give to producers, directors if they come to me, looking to hire me, hopefully, to shoot their film. So I'll just play that and you've got to excuse the music because it has to be producer friendly. If it was my music on there, that would probably scare them off and turn them away, so don't judge me. Yes, yeah, so that's just basically, you know, highlight reel of shots. I try not to put in any dialogue or speaking or anything like that because I try and get footage from my showreel before a project is finished as well. And so because for me it's mainly about showing off the image that, you know, I just try and find the nicest looking ones to put on there and yeah, I don't know, hopefully they hire me based off that. When you see those, um, see that collection, there's a real strong sense of visual language. Shadows, chiaroscuro, colour, mm. um, foreshortening, composition, um, and all effectively used with, with characters. Characters also stand out just as much. Mm. Um, what sort of your approach, um, like, how do you plan this stuff? Like, do you, is it in your head? Does it in paper? Is some of it intuitive? For me, yeah, I mean, I've been doing this 15 years and it's sort of taken me a long time to develop my visual style. And mine has sort of found its way and settled in on quite naturalistic, high contrast kind of, you know, lighting and themes. Um, I try and stay away from, you know, hyper-realistic and any of that kind of stuff, which is a little bit over the top because that, I don't feel that's my, <coughs> my style. Um, I mean, that has mainly developed over the fact that I've, you know, done a lot of dramas across the years. You know, Kiwis are very good at writing drama scripts. So, and you know, a lot of the times you just want the story to tell itself. Sometimes I would need to involve, you know, the lighting and the camera to help aid that story. Um, but that's where that, where that comes from. But yeah, when I start, it's mostly all up in my head. I'm quite a visual person in my mind. So yeah, I try to figure it all out and work out a shot list and work with the director to go from there to put, um, yeah, the script and what they see as their perfect vision of their film on screen. So, um, do you all know what a cinematographer is for starters? That's probably the main thing. <laughs> yeah, what is a cinematographer? So, yeah, actually, I'll go right to the, yeah, a cinematographer is basically the head of everything technical on a film. So, that's camera, lighting, how it moves, um, all the way through to color grading. <coughs> Um, so I basically say it's my job to physically put on screen what is in the director's head. So the person that I work with the most is the director. Um, you know, could be months ahead of a shoot, all the way through the shoot and even into post-production during the editing. Um, I'm involved with that process as well, right up until, you know, the final colour grade. 
and making sure it, you know, sort of matches my vision for the film as well as the director's and find that happy medium. Sometimes that doesn't always work, but most of the time it does because you've had that time to prep and plan ahead of time. Um, because you're working in a team, um, I imagine there'd be quite a few challenges or problems to solve. Be a compromise or happy accidents that sort of happen? Yeah, I mean, <coughs> I mean, film industry is very hierarchical. So basically each department has got their head of department and each of the people that work under that report to that one person. So it's not as much clashing as you think there might be on set with all those creatives mm. and technical people around. But um, yeah, it, it, yeah, it can get a bit tricky sometimes mm. when, especially if you're working with a director and there's a number of times we've gone to a location and they see the scene playing out on one side of the room and I plan for it to be the other side of the room. You know, and I'm fairly stubborn, so I do like to try and stick with what I've planned in my mind kind of thing. But yeah, it's, it's a lot about compromise. And especially if you're running late in a day's shooting and you've got to cut down shots, um, you know, it's a really big compromise to try and get the footage that you need and not waste your day and make sure you still get that creative aspect through and not turn it into Shortland Street, you know. Um, from a reel that you showed us, were there, um, I mean, I, I definitely felt some wow moments. Were there moments in there where you went, yes, you know? Yeah, I mean, there were a couple there that, watching back, watching it back through there is um, one shot in there that I absolutely love is from a feature film called Eternity that I shot. Um, I'm business partners with the director, Alex Galvin, and he came to me one day and he showed me a deleted scene from, is it The Third Man? Orson Welles film? I can't remember which one it was, but it was um, it was a deleted scene of the main character going to this massive warehouse and he's talking to somebody off screen but the only part of them that you see is their silhouette on the wall behind him. So you can, they've got this you know, overpowering shadow behind him and you never see them. So they're, you know, and he said to me, I want to do that. Can we work that out somewhere into the shot or into the film? And so I mulled it over and you saw it there is that when he walks up the stairs, you see her shadow come across the wall and then he turns around and looks up and sees her. And so, you know, that's one of those times where, you know, the director knew what the effect they wanted, but it was up to me to figure out where it would best suit, where it would fit, how the shots lead into that shot and lead out of that shot, because we can't just have a random, you know, shot in the middle just to make it look pretty. It all has to work with itself or else, you know. When I saw that shot, um, it made me smile. Yeah, I figured, oh, <laughs> so man, yeah, yeah, that's a sweet moment. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Orson Welles, so immediately I'm triggered. Yeah. Um, so Orson Welles and, and who else? Who are, uh, are there other directors who are your role models, who you look up to, who you sort of... Well, for me, um, I mean, because I'm a practicing cinematographer now, I mean, I do prefer to pull from more modern, you know, modern films. Mm. Um, I sort of had this thing where when I was a kid, I really hated old films. You know, they bored me and, you know, they didn't look as nice. And then I've slowly begun to appreciate them for what they were and especially the time period they were made and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, a lot of films in their infancy, you know, sort of around the 40s, 50s, 60s, kind of I wasn't that interested in. You know, I, you know, my dad got me into Charlie Chaplin quite early on, but that was more visual comedy. So, you know, I appreciate early cinema and modern cinema. It's just that middle area I haven't quite you know, got in there, but um, when I found, you know, um, noir-type films, you know, that really piqued my interest in terms of how they use the contrast effectively with the light, you know, because an image isn't just about 
how it's lit. It's about the dark areas as well, and it's you know okay to have shadows and darkness, and you know and then that, like you said, goes into horror, and you know modern horror films and all that kind of stuff. Just that gritty kind of harsh look is what I really love, mm. you know, visually and you know and um, what I like to shoot where yeah. I can. What What are some of your early memories of um, shooting film? Because you mentioned something about your family. Mm. No. Yeah, so different technology too. Yeah. yeah. Well, I grew up in England. I was born in Scotland and I grew up in England. And um, every few months, my grandparents would come down and visit us from Scotland, and he always had a video camera. And so, me and my brother used to take the video camera and go film ourselves being stupid. And, you know, um, as I was telling you, we, we used to watch Harry Enfield. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Harry Enfield. It's a skit show thing from the UK back in the early and mid 90s. And me and my brother used to just try and do these little skits which are not at all funny anymore. Now we look back at them, it's quite <laughs> cringeworthy. But um, in doing that, we, you know, I sort of picked up on a few little techniques of, you know, sort of editing and camera to get some different angles and shots. But, you know, we found out one day that we can make things disappear just by pushing the stop button, take the ball out of the hand or whatever it was, push record and it's gone, you know, and just sort of learning all these little in-camera techniques and you know, sort of going from there and, um, yeah, and I think, yeah, Kieran was talking about how we geek over Alien and stuff like that, and like mm. the first movie I remember watching when I was probably about six or seven was Aliens. Mm. Snuck around to my friend, a friend's place who lived next door and their parents had recorded it off the TV that night and we secretly watched it while they were out and, yeah, absolutely fell in love with that universe. Yeah, so that's the first thing I remember and that sort of got me interested in watching more, I don't know, I guess more adult movies, I wasn't allowed to watch it, especially in the UK where all of the alien movies are R18 over there, you know, so I definitely wasn't allowed to watch them. But um, yeah, and sort of it wasn't until I got to high school where in English class, you know, we had a project where we had to make a little short film. So we did this shitty little short film where me and my mates were basically just beating up on each other, <laughs> you know, and um, from there we decided to um, go and make our own little films outside of school and um, borrow the school's equipment and learn how to edit VCR to VCR it was quite interesting. But yeah, we did a couple of years of that and just made these stupid little films because we wanted to do something interesting or stuff that we thought was interesting. And um, yeah, and originally um, I'd never planned to do film. I'd, I'd never thought of it as a career for me and it wasn't until seventh form where I was planning to go to university to do performance music um, and percussion. And I failed on a technicality where I should have been marked for two performances in one evening and I only got marked for one I failed by 1%. And basically I was told I had to do that year again in order to get what I needed to go to uni. And I didn't want to do that. I was too stubborn. So I'm like, I'm not staying in school just for one subject, you know, be the tallest kid in the class. But um, <laughs> so I was looking around and a friend of mine who dropped out of school and started working in film mentioned to me about the film school down in Wellington. And so I applied and I think I became the youngest person ever that they'd taken in. You had to be 18 to start at film school and I turned 18 three days before we started. Yeah, so I did that and yeah, ended up graduating from that sort of towards the top of the class, I ended up shooting one of the graduation films. So you sort of, you know, learn through the year and fight for the spot of either to direct a short film or shoot a short film at the end. And I sort of 
went more towards the technical side from film school and um, a couple of months after leaving film school I got on Kenkong which as a lighting technician which is the way that I wanted to go I wanted to go through lighting rather than camera to get to cinematography because I felt that there was more more I could do with lighting than with camera with camera it's quite a formulaic way of going around it you know point the camera, shoot, blah, blah, blah. I know camera people will probably beat me up hearing me say that, mm. but in my opinion, there's a lot more, lot more creativity and a lot more you can do with lighting because there's an infinite amount of ways you can light a scene and a limited amount of ways you can film one. So, you know, depending on what the mood of the scene is or the effect you're trying to get across, you can literally spend, you know, hours, months, years, lifetimes, setting up the same shot in a different way, in my opinion. So, yeah, I decided to go through the lighting route and, yeah, started my career that way in the lighting teams. Earlier we, we sort of briefly talked about um, creativity and how, um, how it plays a part in this production, mm-hmm. whereas um, you can't just wait for creativity to happen. Mm. you just got to be creative. Yeah. And these sort of upsides and downsides, what's, what's yeah. some of them? Um, well, in terms of my sort of creative process with the, um, the pre-production, I do kind of work when it hits me, you know, like, like with everybody else, you know, you can only really work when creativity strikes. It's really hard to try and work if your brain's not there, you know, so when I, when I do that, you know, when I get into a zone, I'll, you know, start shot listing, developing my shots, the looks, all that kind of stuff. And um, probably a couple of weeks out, it gets to a point where my mind is so in it that I get insomnia every time. Like, I just can't go to sleep. I try, but I can't. I can't switch off my brain because I'm constantly thinking and evolving the shots and, Mm. you know, the lighting setups and how I can do something or make something look better. And it's to a point where I get one to two hours sleep a night for two weeks. And I've sort of learned to live off of that, you know, sort of, I got an average maybe four hours sleep a night when I'm on a project. So kind of works, but then, yeah, like you were saying, when you get onto a film set, you're given 12 hours. A standard film day is about 10 to three quarter hours, but, you know, you give it 12 hours from when you arrive on set to when you finish. And um, It's one of those things where you kind of have to force yourself to be creative because the time and the money won't wait for, you, won't wait for me to be ready to shoot something. So um, that's why I put a lot of prep ahead of time so I know exactly what I'm doing on the day and make sure that everything is set up and ready to go. But yeah, it's one of those things where a day is always evolving. Like I said, if your day runs short, you know, and you've got to adapt and, you know, redo your shot list on the fly to make sure you consolidate your 10 shots into three kind of shots, you know? Um, so always thinking, always going around. And I explained to Karen before that after a film shoot, I get a thing that I call the film hangover where once I've stopped thinking about a film, once it all stops, my mind and body just shuts down. Like, it, it's almost just like a hangover, like the next day, I find it hard to get out of bed, I just can't be asked doing anything. You know, it's just recovery mode, and it's just one of those things that, you know, I've just come to expect after I've shot a film, because I'm just constantly on 12 hours a day, and then at night time I get a couple hours sleep, and then next day, and then, you know, repeat, repeat, repeat. And then, yeah, once once that whole thing stops, you know, just flatline, you know, it's totally <laughs> gone. Yeah, so it's quite a strange process how my mind works with all that stuff, you know, going from, you know, always on 
very vivid visions of what I want and all this kind of stuff, and then to nothing, you know, so, yeah. So what I can show you here is that uh, last year I took part in the 48-hour film challenge. Do you guys know about that? Get 48 hours to make a film on the first day. At 7 p.m. on the Friday, you get given your genre, a character, a line of dialogue, a prop, and a technical additional aspect to add, which is like a camera move or something like that. And then 48 hours later, you have to have a finished film. So last year we did it. It was the longest film day that I've ever done. It was 23 hours from start to finish, from when we first I rolled, when we finished, because we had to shoot it all in that one day. Um, but because of it, I ended up winning the best cinematography for Wellington and the best cinematography for New Zealand out of 750 teams nationally. So, yeah, which was totally unexpected and I didn't expect to get that far, especially since the last 48 hours that I did was back in 2012 or something. I just went along for fun. Wow, man. Yeah. That is so cool. Beautifully framed <laughs> performances as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Aaron, who was the lead or the only guy in that, I don't know if any of you have watched Shorten Street, but he was the weird serial killer dude or something on there last year. Um, he won the best actor for Wellington and New Zealand as well, and he didn't even have a line of dialogue. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. From us? From that one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a number of awards yeah. for this year. Yeah. So, in terms of like your um, filming process, so the daytime stuff, so you started with that sort of scene, and the nighttime is yeah, well, some of the daytime stuff was actually at night time oh, okay. as well. So it's part of those, um, you know, sort of problem solving of how can you make nighttime look like daytime, which is, you know, fairly... It wasn't actually great. Yeah. Yeah. Every, every team in Wellington had shitty weather. So, like, that, that's how you can, how we can tell that they were all shot the same weekend because it was just a torrential downpour the entire, the entire... Um, weekend so yeah we just got to work around those, those I mean, issues really when you unpack that you know there's the music the mm. costumes the location the script yeah. um getting the camera in those spaces yeah. there's, there's a lot to, to well that about. was i mean that, i think that's the whole thing of 48 hours you can only prep so much so we had like three different locations depending on what genre we got and three different sets of wardrobe depending on a period. Mm. Um, but yeah, the script was written the night before and was finished about an hour before we went out to start filming it. Um, and then we finished at 4.30 in the morning on the Sunday and that gave us just over 12 hours to, how long was that, 12, 30, about 15 hours or so to edit the film and get the music in and all that kind of stuff. And mm. I believe our composer was up in Auckland as well, so they kept sending him cuts as it was going, like as it was getting locked down. He was making the music from Auckland and sent it back to us um, during that whole process. And we got it in with, I think, four minutes to spare. Wow. Yeah. And you edited this? Did you? I didn't edit this one, you no. Didn't, didn't I, as a, yeah, I try not to edit the short films that I shoot because I'm too involved with it. So, yeah, basically, <laughs> yep. like, if I get given an editing project, it will end up the way I pictured it in my mind, and that's it, you know. Mm. you know, Usually when you've got other editors editing it, they can see other angles to your shots and how it can go together and, you know, make it look better. But, again, because I'm, I'm quite stubborn, it'll end up the way that I pictured it when I'm shot listing, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. There's been, I mean, there has been a few um, short films that I've edited as well as shot. Um, I've got a, you know, like a 
partnership with a couple of other people. We've got a production company, so we've produced a couple of short films, which I ended up editing just to try and, you know, have them not cost as much money. So, yeah. And once again, you won Best Cinematographer? Best Cinematographer for that one, yeah. There you go. For Wellington and New Zealand. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. So, so you've worked on King Kong, you've worked mm -hmm. on these films. Mm -hmm. um, and I heard that uh, you've got some war stories about a particular oh, yeah. film with blue people that takes place yeah, in a just planet a tiny little there. film. Yeah, so I did lighting on Avatar. So I, I did eight, eight or nine months on Avatar. Um, I started off in um, what we call the practical lighting unit, which is um, installing all of the lights into the sets and things like that. And um, I got, yeah, one of the jobs I got given the shitty job of soldering LEDs and making computer screens look real and lighting props and all that kind of stuff. Um, basically because nobody else wanted to do it. <laughs> but um, it was quite handy and, you know, learning how to use um, LEDs and making things look a lot more realistic. And um, actually I did chuck, hang on, I chucked a couple of pictures in here because I've got a horror story about one of them there as well. But I think it's this one. So you might recognise that. So I just use that as an example of my work because everything in the background there that's lit up I was given three days to do that kind of stuff so I was given the props and all the different things and had to light that um, but after I did that I moved on to the shooting crew and we shot for another six seven months um, which was good but it was also quite hard because it was minimum 14 hour days um, longest day we did was 18 and a half hours um, and that was, yeah, that was, um, I guess that's the war story day. We had one day out in the back lot where, oh yeah, I've got a photo here as well somewhere. So shooting the, I think they, what did they call that? The Samson helicopter coming in and landing and coming up. Um, so we did one day out in the back lot doing this, which was a really long day. And um, that little rig up above the top there, that was where I was stationed. I've got another better photo of it. So this thing up here was this massive, you know, scaff rig with, um, I think we had about eight um, 12,000 watt lamps on there. Um, and it was my job to be up there and make sure these lights didn't switch off or break or anything like that and point them in the area where the DOP needed them. Um, but that was suspended by two massive cranes. You can see the crane arm one side. So it was held up one end by a crane, one end by another crane suspended right in the middle of the set. Uh, actually, I think that top light there, that's me <laughs> in that photo. But um, yeah, so, but the only way to get up there was using one of these cherry picker things. So I had to go up there um, and that was my way up and down. And um, basically they ended up using that to put another light on. Um, it's probably that one in the background. They ended up putting some lights on so I couldn't get down. And so at lunchtime, which was about, shit, that was probably about nine hours into the day, broke for lunch and everything was still rigged up so I couldn't come down. So basically I had a bucket up there that I was told to lower down and then, you know, the other lighting guys wrapped me a plate of food and chucked some other stuff in there <laughs> and um, took it up and I you know, said to them, like, yeah, at some point soon I'm going to have to go to the loo. <laughs> like I'm going to have to get down and they're like, okay, we'll see what we can do, see if we can free up a cherry picker to come get you before the end of lunch, which they didn't do. Um, and then I think it was about 13, 14 hours into the day, I was bursting, 
bursting to go for a piss. And I just said, like, I can't hold on anymore. Like, I can barely move. It's so sore. And then they're like, okay, let's see what we can do. And um, I got a call on the radio again. And they said, throw down your rope. And what they put on there was a three-liter juice bottle. An oh. empty three-liter juice bottle. And then all they said was, it's the best we can do. <laughs> and so I was up there, yeah, basically taking a piss into a bottle. Shoot it on, hey, catch. Down, down below catch. of, yeah, down below of, uh, I think there was about... 200 people on set that day, and so... Oh, okay, but yeah. Yeah, yeah the hours were, hours were long. But yeah, I was ready if they needed a rain effect, though, so it's fine. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> so, so, Matt, you've, you've, you've worked in, you know, these, these films. Um, mm -hmm. You, know, you you do your work here. You're going to putting resources together, video yeah. editing, um, and and what about your? Um, do you have side projects? Like what? Yeah. What other things do you do? You know, um, when you so obviously I can't do film all the time because you know I, on average I do maybe one or two projects a year. Last year I was quite busy and ended up doing about four or five, and so far this year I've already done two, including a feature film. Um, but yeah, like a couple of years ago I branched into. Um, portrait photography so and I kind of figured that I'll try and trans see if I can translate my lighting knowledge to photography and try and do portrait photography that was a little different um, I bought some of those along as well oh go away go away um, so it goes along with my very sort of high contrast you know sort of style so you might recognize some people because I dragged some people in from TLC to give me a hand up in the studio. And so actually this one here was messing around with projection. So the only lighting source was a projected image onto, um, onto the person to, yeah, try and get an effect. I think that was the first one I did. That was one of HR Geiger's pieces. Um, and that's projected onto Lena's face. Cool. And it scarily matched up, and it was actually quite terrifying. Especially, there was, I got a couple of shots where I got it to open her eyes, and that was just a little bit too terrifying for me. So wow. that's her with her eyes closed. Um, but yeah, the proportions matched perfectly to her face, and it was quite creepy. Um, oh, and that's more projection, just using different shapes and patterns to try and get an effect. Um, I don't know if you remember Ness. Um, but we were screwing around with a reflective umbrella one day and thought, well, Try and get a little effect. The light source there is, was on the ground going up into the back of the umbrella. Yeah. Um, so I try and do something a little bit more, yeah, unnatural with the lighting with a lot of contrast. Oh, this one, I started doing some ones which sort of told a story as well. So this is one of a series of four that tell a sort of round story where you can look at individual ones. And you know the image itself tells a story, but when you look at all of the series as well, it's sort of a narrative between the whole series from the first one to the last one. Um, what else I got in here? Oh, that was a test for the last year's prospectus cover that we did that they didn't go with. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, I mean the stuff I like to do the most is this high contrast, very black, very white, you know, kind of um, silhouette type stuff. Oh, and that was one of the first ones. This was a, the project that actually got me into doing portrait photography. Is this was for the um, 
diploma photography resources in the books. We needed two new sets of photography resources around portraiture. And one was around movement and another one was just natural lighting. So this one here, me and Ness came up with the idea of the movement being water. You know, like the raindrops coming down behind. And yeah, so we took a series of those photos um, and it turned out quite well. And it just so happened that at the time, the reason why I did that with this photo here and brought out the color and the rest in black and white is because um, at the time Lena had henna in her hair. It was dyed and when it was lit from behind, it just glowed, you know, that kind of red color. And it just so happened that Cherie that we had at the, who came up as well to do the other part of it, had really blue hair at the time. And because they're complementary colors, you know, it worked out quite nicely. So yeah, I think that was it, yeah. I do like your um, little aperture logo. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of a Yeah, I kind of like a weird, yeah, weird little cool. logo for it, but yeah. You've also done some astrophotography, maybe? Some sky yeah. stuff? Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, when I started taking photos, it was a while ago because uh, a cinematographer who came in and taught us at film school, he gave me a bit of advice and told me to get a stills camera and just take photos because that way I'll get a natural life of composition and stuff like that. And then when I was doing that, I went out one night and sort of played around with long exposures and started taking really nice night shots. And then it wasn't too long ago, uh, last year, end of last year, um, I had the camera and just thought, I'm gonna go down to the beach and just see if I can take a photo of the galaxies and the stars and stuff. And yeah, kind of got into it that way, but sort of, again, not just taking photos of the stars, but kind of incorporating foreground elements and something there to make it stand out than just, you know, the night landscape astrophotography stuff. So um, I think I haven't got the photos with me, but there was a photo that I had where I had a torch because I took torch down and during the 30 second exposure, I took the torch pointed at the ground and walked along the beach and it sort of lit up the beach, you know, as it went along and yeah. Just, again, just sort of playing with light and knowing the properties of light and what I could try and get away with and do without breaking an image. Cool, cool. So what's, what's, what's next? What are you up to next? What's next? Um, I don't know, I guess, I mean, there, there's, you know, I'm at the stage in my career now where I don't have to go out and find projects to work on. You know, when I first started, it was a lot of hustle of, you know, meeting directors and saying, look, here's what I can do. Here's my, you know, at that point, really shitty showreel. Um, you know, will you trust me to shoot your film? But now I've done enough projects. I've got about 40 short films that I've shot and I've just finished my fourth, fourth feature film, I think as well. Um, I've done a heap of corporate videos and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, so I'm at a point where I did get approached by directors and producers. Um, through word of mouth or they find me online and see my show reel and approach me to shoot their stuff. So, you know, at the moment I've got nothing planned because it was only about three weeks ago I finished shooting this feature film. And so, yeah, who knows? I could get a call tomorrow and be working for the next, you know, few months on a project. But, um, yeah, that last project that I shot was called Blind Panic. I think there was like you know, they were trying to get people to help out with art department and stuff. Um, but um, I got a call six days before shooting that. And it's the least amount of time I'd had to prep any film, let alone a feature film. And it was a two-week shoot. And just so happened the director 
um, kind of knew what he wanted and already done his own shot list and it was you know stepping in last minute because the DOP who was originally going to be shooting it it was I did two weeks of a four-week shoot he could do the second two weeks but he couldn't do the full four weeks because he had a paid gig come up um, yeah so I got called to step into his shoes and yeah basically winged it all the way through <laughs> but again I'm at that sort of level with the experience I've got where I can wing it without freaking out too much and know it'll turn out turn out good yeah so yeah does um do you guys have any questions for Matt yeah some really good directors were cinematographers mm. originally, weren't they? Yeah, well, like Wally Fister, he was the cinematographer for Christopher Nolan and the Batman movies, and after that he went and did Transcendence, I think it was. Yeah, but I mean, I've directed one short film, um, but that's because for the last sort of 10 years I've been developing this um, psychological horror feature film, and um, well, I'm quite close to it. It's evolved so much over the years I've been writing it, and it's at a point now where it's sort of ready to shoot, but I wanted to shoot a proof of concept short. Um, but I didn't want anybody else to direct it because I'm sort of so close with that. I didn't want anybody else to screw it up. So, you know, if it turned out good, it's on me. If it turned out bad, it's on me. So, yeah, I did a three and a half minute proof of concept short, which some of the clips were in um, in my showreel. Um, there was one the guy getting hit around the face, you know, like the... Harley Quinn looking type chick and you know the guy with I don't know if you can see it that well on there but he's um, the guy gets kidnapped and wakes up with a metal plate riveted into his face and so he's yeah he's been thrown into this situation but um yeah so I filmed sort of that opening scene of him being kidnapped and waking up and being told what situation he's in and how to get out of it kind of thing um, but I yeah I shot and directed that which is quite hard to do trying to keep yeah you know, your finger on both buttons at the same time. But um, yeah, I figured that if I ever do get a chance to make this movie, I'd want to direct it, but I'd hire a DOP who is better than me, so I won't get hung up on, you know, something not looking right, you know? So, and that's probably the only way I'd be able to let that go, um, with how sort of stubborn I am, is making sure the person that shoots it's better than me. <laughs> so, yeah. Elaborating on that, um talk about like, having a role and that role you know whether it be editing or whatever to another person do you think that's quite important in a creative sense for like you evolving and seeing things that maybe you wouldn't see initially um yeah you know like because you obviously have this image of how you want something to turn yeah. out do you get pleasantly surprised sometimes when you allocate those other roles to other people and you know yeah well i mean like like you said the editing side of it it is really nice when you see a cut come back and sort of see it in a different way than you saw it. And yeah, most of the time, it does take me by surprise. It's like, oh yeah, that actually looks much better than what I thought it was gonna be. Um, but sometimes I had a film that I shot, which was a straight story, you know, narrative from front to end. And the um, editor decided to get a little bit fancy with it. And, you know, there's something that happens right at the beginning of the film, which sets the tone for the rest of the film but he decided that he would make that a twist at the end and chopped and changed all of the film up to a point where, you know, you think the main character is just an asshole all the way through until you see at the end, you know, oh, he got this situation wrong, where the way it plays out is 
the, in the script, you saw him confront this challenge at the beginning, and then you're kind of sympathetic to his character because he has kind of taken the situation wrong. And, you know, how he works his way through that was sort of what drew me to the story. And then trying to get fancy with it just destroyed the film and was not happy with that one at all. So, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it is like that. Any other questions? Is working with actors hard? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, I mean, a lot of actors are good. A lot of actors are quite good, but, you know, at the techie departments, very lovingly call them meat puppets. Yeah. So you get the odd, um, you know, prima donna on Dev every now and again. Um, but no, it's it is quite easy because I do have to interact with the actors a lot as well because um, I don't give them direction, but I give them almost screen direction. So where to stand, where their marks are, and sort of explain how I'd want them to travel through a shot, or you know, especially if the shot's moving and I'm panning with them or the camera's dollying along with them. Um, so I do do try and build up a rapport with the actors to make sure you know that I can just go up to them when they're in a moment because a lot of actors do sink themselves really deep into the character and if you interrupt them while they're preparing for a big scene you know it will throw them out and get shitty with you and you know so I try and build up as much of a rapport as I can so when I can just go up to them and say hey can you stand here or can we move you over this way a little bit or you know so yeah I mean it is one big group effort and that's one of the things as well about working on the big films is you know, a lot of the stuff that I got when I told people I was working on Avatar or King Kong, it was like, oh, you know, how's Sigourney Weaver, what's she like, or how's Jack Black, and all this kind of stuff, and, you know, when you work on a big set like that, everybody's there to do the same job, to have the same outcome, you know, so, you know, and it's one of those things you realise they're just people, <laughs> you know, like, especially the big, you know, the big names, you know, they're people, and, you know, most of them are really nice, some of them do a bit fool themselves. But yeah, it's it's really interesting working beside, you know, especially someone like Sigourney Weaver and James Cameron. Like when I when I got the call to come on to Avatar, I nearly shit myself. I I didn't hear I didn't know of the project at all. And I looked up directed by James Cameron with Sigourney Weaver. I'm like thinking, my God, is this another like aliens film? Like is this gonna be you know, a sequel to aliens or something? But um yeah, and um yeah, it was quite cool, so yeah. It's really interesting to actually get to talk to these people as kind of normal people where, you know, I guess when they do like the press circuit, they're all prepared for the questions about, you know, I don't know, what the hell they're wearing and, you know, all the glitz and glamoury type shit. But it's kind of nice to actually work with people in the same environment, which, you know, for lack of a better word, it's like working in a factory. You know, it's hard work. It's, you know, long hours. And... Um, yeah, it's just nice that everybody's there doing the same thing, even people that you'd think would be too big for it, you know? So, yeah. Cool. Well, we kind of approach the end. Uh, thank you, Matt. Sweet. Giving us your insight, eh? <laughs> This podcast was brought to you by The Learning Connection, School of Creativity and Art, tlc.ac.nz.